people could take their seats, please. This is the uh, this is the panel uh, called Art is Action, Culture, Violence, and Civil Society. We may or may not have the best panel. I think we do, but we also have the best title. Uh, and it's a particularly important session, I think. I'm going to be very brief. I'm Stan Katz, and I'm a professor here in the school. I'm the director of the Center for Arts and Cultural Policy Studies, uh, which is the sponsor of this particular session. I think it's a very unusual session, a wide range of people, and these are uh, mostly not people like me, academics. We have one academic, people who are actually doing the kinds of th things that we're really uh, interested in. I am going to make uh, quite brief uh, introductions, and I will do them just as each uh, speaker uh, begins. And I hope that we will really proceed through this so that we do have some time for uh, discussion and comment at the very end. The first speaker uh, is going to be uh, Dudley Cock. Uh, Dudley is the director of Roadside Theater. He's a stage director, media producer, teacher, and writer. He's presently directing the jazz bluegrass musical Betsy and recently directed Zuni Meets Appalachia for the Smithsonian's Museums of the American Indian in New York and in Washington. I think the Washington one's going to open in September, isn't it? 21st. 21st. Um, his international work includes directing the company's innovative performances in the Czech Republic, uh, directing Junebug Jack for England's Festival of the American South, um, and conducting uh, dance story workshops uh, in 1996 for the Baltic Dance Festival in Poland. Um, under his direction, Roadside has toured its original plays in 43 states, performed in big cities from London to L.A. Uh, he has taught theater at Cornell and at uh, William and Mary, and he often speaks and writes as an advocate for democratic <coughs> cultural values. Uh, he has co-edited a number of books. Uh, his speeches are collected in other volumes. Um, he has co-authored plays. I'm not going to read you the entire list. He is a graduate of Washington Lee uh, University uh, and did graduate work at Harvard. And in, 19, in 2002, he won the uh, Heinz Award for the Arts and Humanities. I've known Dudley for some time now. He is one of the great examples of uh, artist, uh, community advocate in this country. Uh, and I'm really delighted that he's here with us today. Dudley. Uh, thank you, Stan, and uh, thanks to Princeton for uh, the opportunity to be here. I've been here all morning and um, listening, and I found it uh, really fascinating uh, to look through this lens of Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think if uh, you all were in the last uh, session, uh, we heard uh, and, uh, about how big the issue of culture is in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, watching the video that the uh, general brought along, I found um, almost heartbreaking for the irony of the music, as uh, Dean Slaughter pointed out, can't find your way home if you remember the context of that song as a door is being broken down, the pipes playing Amazing Grace, I think we all know the history of that song. So this issue of the centrality of culture 
and its offspring, Art, I think is right in the center of uh, this conversation we're having at this second colloquium. I want to tell a story um, that uh, took place in Florida in just before the 2000 uh, presidential election. It's a story I'm mindful of as we uh, are in this political season. A reporter in Florida was asked by a paper to go out and interview citizens and ask them what was important about the upcoming presidential election. She spotted two guys sitting by the pool, obviously retired, seemed to have plenty of uh, time on their hands, and she popped her question, gentlemen, what's important about this upcoming presidential election? First guy, without uh, taking a beat, said, the economy. Second guy said, well, the Supreme Court. And then almost together, they finished uh, the sentence, the culture. The reporter sort of stepped back, rocked on her heels a bit, said, well, I understand the economy. I understand the Supreme Court, but what do you fellows mean by the culture? And here they finished each other's sentence. First guy said, who controls the culture? Second guy said, controls the story the nation tells itself. So uh, as I talk today, I in, uh, invite us all to draw the lines between the state of NGOs here in the United States and in Iraq and in Afghanistan. I ask you uh, to think about that if you were in these earlier sessions because that was uh, a good bit of the conversation. I want to make uh, just one statement before I get into the particulars of the organization I've been working with for 30 years. And this statement um, is based on this work, but it has to do with this issue of the centrality of culture. And uh, I put it like this, that it is in our national interest to end promptly the cultural isolationism that began with the Reagan administration, was reinforced by the end of the Cold War, and marked by our withdrawal from UNESCO in 1984. With the curtailment of NGO and a narrow sample of that to boot, is all most people in the world near now hear about us in this era of globalization. People around the world have no idea about the variety of stories lived here on a daily basis. They have no way to see that it is the spiritual and cultural diversity of the United States that lights our beacon of freedom. So this is to say to not be glib about it, but it's my own feeling that um, over these last 20 years, uh, we haven't understood that it is uh, the culture, stupid. I want to talk a little bit about um, Appalachia and Apple Shop. Roadside Theater is one part of an organization called Apple Shop from the Appalachian Film Workshop. It began in 1969 as a war on poverty program. They started a number of these around the uh, U.S., and the idea was you'd get a head start, train poverty kids, poor kids, to get a head start in the film and television industry. 
Well, um, the thing, the problem in rural Appalachia, this was the only rural when they started. The others were inner city. And the problem was there are no jobs in the film and television industry anywhere near rural central Appalachia. And this is the coal fields of central Appalachia near Harlan, Hazard, southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, southwest Virginia, upper east Tennessee. So there were no jobs. So the kids, rather than taking the prescribed government course, just took the cameras and began making their own pictures. Well, this sent a like lightning through the region because if you remember the um, late 60s, Appalachia was where the war on poverty began. In fact, that's where Lyndon Johnson announced the war on poverty. So there were media people coming in from not only the major urban centers in this country, but from all over the world to make pictures about this new war on poverty. And to particularly, it was appealing because here were poor white people. And so it didn't seem to fit the media stereotype of poor people of color. So here was this organization started by really young people, teenagers, who were suddenly telling a very different story with uh, their own cameras. So people came to Apple Shop from all over the region to partake of this. And if the idea was so exciting to uh, these teenagers and young adults that they said, well, if we can do this in film and video, why don't we start our own record company, our own publishing company, our own theater company, um, our own radio station. So today, Apple Shop works in all those medias. And the uh, idea is to tell the Appalachian story from the inside out. So let me give you um, just a sample of some of the stories that uh, we're working on right now. One project that's been going seven years is called The Holler to the Hood. And this project came about because uh, seven, eight years ago, with the demise of the coal industry, uh, the economic, uh, the next economic savior for our region was going to be maximum security prisons. So we've got two uh, in the county, and the I live in, in the adjoining county, we've got two maximum security prisons. Well, who's in those prisons are chiefly uh, poor people of color. And who are the guards? Chiefly uh, white people. Uh, of modest means as well. And so you have in these prisons suddenly an, old, uh, an overlay in some sort of uh, odd way, almost surreal way, of the old plantation system. Human Rights Watch did a study on these uh, prisons and found there to be a whole series of uh, problems. So we got involved at that point of trying to put the stories together of these uh, uh, prisoners and the guards. So we've done this through all of our different media, through performance, through uh, film, through video, video slash film, through our radio. And it's trying to compare and get a conversation going between these two communities. So just one example of this is um, we've started making um, a, a whole new music that takes the traditional sounds of Appalachian music and works with hip-hop music. Now, it seems maybe far-fetched, but in fact, um, 
the, uh, particularly coming off the traditional uh, Appalachian instrument, the banjo, which is an African-derived instrument, uh, the beats, the percussive of the banjo. This has actually been quite interesting and worked out well, and it's been now going and evolving for uh, some time. So it's about bridging these two cultures um, there. That's one project that's now ongoing six years. Another uh, project is um, the, in Martin County, Kentucky. On October 11, 2000, there was a slurry dam that collapsed, and the spill was 30 times the amount of the Exxon uh, Valdez spill. So we've been working um, on that since, since that happened. And it's, in a, it's an evolving story, a developing story that uh, has gotten fairly uh, complicated, particularly when Jack Spadaro, who was part of the original um, investigative team, uh, of course Clinton was in the president when, it, uh, when the spill occurred, and uh, Spadaro was part of the investigative team. He, uh, then the Bush administration came in, and uh, he uh, blew the whistle because he thought it was a cover-up um, with the new administration. And so the story continues. 60 Minutes did a piece on it um, a few weekends ago. Uh, National Public Radio did a piece on the Holler to the Hood project um, just a week ago. My sort of point by naming 60 Minutes and um, National Public Radio is one of the core questions of this uh, colloquium is this issue of accountability. How does um, an NGO remain accountable to, uh, to its constituency, to the community, to the people? And one of the things uh, about uh, Apple Shop and Roadside Theater is that we've been essentially embedded in Appalachia now for 35 years. And these are people, uh, the people in the organization by and large are from there. So um, we in a sense are the loyal opposition. And yes, some of these stories like our footage was used in the CBS and so forth. But the real story and the more complicated story is being told in this ongoing work um, that Apple Shop is, is doing on these projects. And we are in the community, we're not flying in and flying out, so we have to live with the community uh, with all of the work we do. So the conversation about such issues is ongoing and iterative uh, with our community now for 35 years. Um, let me just uh, say one uh, thing about this notion of bridging cultures. We've done a lot of that uh, work in the theater over the course of uh, 30, 30 years. And um, we first began by telling the Appalachian story, our own story. We developed our own form and content for the theater. And uh, we, we had missing links in our story. And so what we had to do first was a series of plays that forged those links. Um, 
So if you look at our work over like a 15-year period, it's chronological as we linked our story back together. Once we felt like we had our own story somewhat uh, back together, we began linking the Appalachian story to the stories of other communities around the U.S. So we've linked that story to, we've made a play with folks in the South Bronx, and African-American theater in New Orleans, a three-way. Um, the issue came up in the last session about the military culture and the NGO culture um, and whether there can be any bridge there. Uh, we made a two-year project with Arizona State Police and found uh, that it was uh, fascinating to make that kind of bridge between a police culture and, and an artistic culture. Of course, each of these projects has um, many, many stories, often humorous, uh, connected to them. So I want to um, just close here my introductory remarks by uh, letting you hear a little bit of, um, well, before that, I'll explain that we often pull in, uh, if there are three sectors in the U.S., the uh, for-profit, the not-for-profit, there's a third sector that is vital culturally, and I call that the unincorporated sector. So you have non-profit corporations, for-profit corporations, and what I call the unincorporated sector. And often we work with that sector. It's a fascinating sector. Some of the highest aesthetic uh, quality, in fact, resides there. One quick example, when we were making this play with the black theater in New Orleans about working class white and black issues, uh, of course, that's who we wanted in the audience when we toured nationally, were white and black working class folk. Well, number one, they don't go to the theater. Number two, they don't go out together. So how did we solve it? What we did was <laughs> sent the music for this musical ahead and communities put together super choirs, ecumenical choirs from the black church, the white church, the women's chorus from youth, and they rehearsed the music then uh, for a month or so, just in the evenings when they had time. Then I would come in and stage them in the place. So it went from a six-person play with a professional cast to a 26-person play with this community choir. Now you. The, the idea was not we were going to talk about race, we're trying to get this production together. But through this singing, all kinds of relationships were built um, among the participants. And um, of course, everybody had to come see their kin in the play. And of course, there was a new sound that got created because these groups hadn't sung together. And this new sound was really exciting, particularly to young people. So these are the kind of strategies we've used. And um, I'm just going to uh, see if we can play one little uh, section just so you hear something besides my voice. Um, of uh, a, This is about a minute and a half of a song from a two-hour play that we made with Zuni Indians.
Thank you. I think you can get just a, a glimpse of the incredible work that Dudley and these people have been doing for a very long time now. Uh, the program groups itself really into two parts, uh, and I'm going to put on Mark Stern next. And by the way, in relation to the overall title and theme of the colloquium, it's NGOs and nation building. Well, uh, everybody here is uh, either part of an NGO or uh, studies NGOs. And our version of nation building is a little different. We're not the military. Um, you build a nation starting from the village or the family or the community or the neighborhood. And uh, that's our kind of nation building. So that's what we will talk about. Mark Stern is a scholar who's very much involved in these things. He's a professor of social work and history at the University of Pennsylvania. He's really trained as an historian. He teaches social policy and racism in the school, directs the urban studies program, conducts research on the history of poverty and welfare, and also on the role of arts and cultural organizations in, uh, in those communities. He's done a lot of writing, and I'm not going to lay it all on you, but just to give you some idea. Um, a book on social welfare, a history of America's response to need with June Axon, uh, dependency and poverty, old problems in a new world, also with June Axon, uh, the social organization of early industrial capitalism, society and family strategy, uh, community study in New York, and uh, we in our center know him best and I know him best because he is the outstanding uh, scholar of what difference cultural organization activity makes in local communities, in this case in Philadelphia. Mark. Thanks, Dan. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I, I must say this is the first time I've been to Princeton since we stole your provost as our new president. So I was a little, I had some trepidations about what my reception would be, but happy to report that I, I think primarily because we let Princeton win the basketball title this year. I find that the relationships have been anytime. Uh, well, that was quite a buildup from Stan. Uh, I, as, as he mentions, I, I've been uh, directing um, a project, the Social Impact of the Arts Project, for the last 10 years. Uh, the project was primarily sorry, focused on um, kind of a reaction to uh, a big vogue of the 90s, which was the economic impact of the arts studies. Uh, we felt that there were two problems with that. On the one hand, focusing on economic impact of the arts left far too much of the cultural world out of the equation, because if you start talking about economic impact, you're talking even in a city like New York, of just a handful of institutions, in a city like Philadelphia, we're talking about two or three. Uh, we also felt that, it, you know, we hope not that many people decide to go into the arts be, to make an economic impact. So we felt like that by focusing just on economic impact, we weren't really dealing with the whole range of motives that people take on to get involved in the arts. So the, the focus of the project was on exploring way, non-economic ways that the arts have an impact on cities, on communities, uh, on society generally. Um, we've done that primarily with using two methods. On the one hand, uh, we've got kind of a quantitative strategy where we develop a set of indicators of cultural activity ranging from 
number of cultural organizations in particular neighborhoods to levels of participation, a variety of other ways that we, we try to get a quantitative hold on that. And we've used uh, uh, geographic information systems, GIS technology, to link that data to other data on urban neighborhoods to look at that connection. At the same time, we've also conducted a set of case studies of small community-based art groups in Philadelphia. Right now, at any one time, of course, we aren't doing 50, but over the last 10 years, there have been 50, 60 groups that we've followed kind of on and off uh, to get a better understanding of, of how arts influences community from the ground up and to see how we could connect kind of these quantitative relationships we're finding to kind of what's actually going on on the ground. I should mention that both in my affiliation with the School of Social Work and with the Urban Studies Program, both of those programs have a very heavy emphasis on practice. We, in both of those programs, we require our students to go out and actually work for nonprofits and working communities. And I think that connection to practice has spilled over into this project. Uh, we judge our success, uh, I would say, to a great extent by the ability of practitioners in the field to, to make sense of the material we use. And that's, it's that balancing of these kind of more abstract quantitative findings with the a kind of a groundedness in practice that I think has been uh, the strength of our project. Uh, what I'd like to do today is essentially two things. First of all, kind of go through relatively quickly some of the basic quantitative findings around impacts, around the extent to which we can find connections between arts activity and other positive outcomes in urban neighborhoods. And then secondly, you know, because this is a big symposium on NGOs, I wanted to take a look at one issue around organizational issue that we've come across. Uh, this is the irrational organizations point. Uh, and this is essentially about what we see as a lack of fit between the strengths of small community-based organizations. We call them informal arts organizations, but it's this unincorporated, these groups that operate at the margins between kind of an established NGO sector and kind of informal community activity. The lack of fit between the strengths of this sector and the perception of this sector by funders, by other entities in society, and that what we see is a real conflict between what we see as the potential of the sector and uh, how people want to improve it. Uh, so let me talk about that. Oh, I have to do this. Good. Uh, essentially, in terms of, thank you, big social, got Princeton, just things like this, uh, is essentially two basic ways we thought about social impacts of the arts. One, basically one internal to urban neighborhoods and another about a bridging function. On the one hand, our argument is that cultural activity in urban neighborhoods increases what we call collective efficacy, the ability of residents in those communities to engage and take responsibility for a whole range of activities within those communities. The second set of findings we have is essentially this bridging finding, that because of some of the particular peculiarities or unique qualities of cultural engagement, uh, it is particularly suited to dealing with diversity, both in the sense that areas of the city that are economically and ethnically diverse tend to be homes 
of high levels of cultural engagement and because of the way cultural engagement works in Philadelphia, that, uh, it, that cultural activity bridges gaps between groups, uh, even if they don't live right next to each other. Okay. All right, so let me start with collective efficacy. Um, as I said, the basic point here is that there's a clear spillover effect between extent to which urban neighborhoods have high levels of cultural engagement and other kinds of positive, positive outcomes in terms of those neighborhoods. The first point here is that arts is clearly connected to other forms of, of civic engagement. This was a survey we did a few years ago now, but it, it rates, it, we asked people who were involved in the arts, what else did they do? You can see the biggest thing they did was religion, but there was a whole range of activities and you know, I didn't put the slide up here, but if you compare cultural participants to non-participants, the levels of engagement for cultural participants are, are significantly higher. I'll probably, if I, have a, if I remember, I'm gonna come back to that religion issue later on. Um, you know, and if you take that down to the, the individual, to looking at it in terms of neighborhood effects, people who live in neighborhoods with high levels of cultural engagement are also more likely to be involved in, in these activities. So there's both an individual connection between being involved in the arts and being involved in other things, but there's a neighborhood effect as well. If you live in a neighborhood where lots are going on, people in those neighborhoods tend to do lots of other things as well, and that's, that's an important point as well. Uh, in terms of positive spillover effects, one of the areas we've been able to look at, primarily thanks to the Cartographic Modeling Lab in, at Penn, uh, they were able to work with the Department of Human Service to get data on uh, delinquent out-of-home placements and truancy among young people in Philadelphia. Uh, this slide looks at the relationship between neighborhoods with high levels of, cu of cultural participation uh, and the likelihood that those neighborhoods would have very low truancy and delinquency. This slide is only of uh, neighborhoods in the bottom quartile of the population in terms of uh, per capita income. So we're looking just at the poorest neighborhoods in the city of Philadelphia. And what we find is that if we control for the economic impact, which is a big if, because remember a lot of these things are still, arts are important, but they can't overcome a lot of the structure of inequalities built into our societies. It's not so, we have to keep those forefronted as well. But if we control for economic impact, looking just at poor neighborhoods, there's this very strong relationship between low truancy, low out of delinquent out-of-home placement, and levels of cultural participation. Now there's an interesting point here. Um, the typical way, if you go out and see about arts and kids, there's sort of this art. I think uh, Jane Alexander, when she was head of NEA, had this quote about a kid who has a paintbrush in their hand, won't have a gun or a needle because they're They've got better things to do. And certainly there, there are studies that have demonstrated, or, or tried to demonstrate at least, an individual connection between doing, the art, doing arts and you know, other positive outcomes for kids. That's not what we're finding in this slide. You know, as I said, we're looking at cultural organizations that are very small. There's no way that all the kids in these neighborhoods were actually going into arts, uh, doing arts activity. The effect we're measuring here is a neighborhood effect. The fact that if you live in a neighborhood where there's a high level of cultural engagement, there is this promotion of what other scholars have called collective efficacy, a feeling that you 
can, that you have an ability to control the environment in your neighborhood and you're willing to do that. And it's that neighborhood effect that I think we're picking up here, not an individual effect between doing the arts and you know, not doing other stuff. Uh, finally, you know, and I think uh, a part of this collective efficacy is we find this strong connection between uh, people who are active in, in cultural activities and kind of the overall view of neighborhoods. People who are in the, these high cultural, these neighborhoods with high levels of cultural participation are much more likely to view their neighborhoods positively, and that's what comes through in this slide. Okay, so that's one side of it. Um, this kind of internal within the neighborhood, if you uh, have high levels of culture, the people in that neighborhood feel like they're invested in their neighborhood and positive outcomes flow from that. The other effect has to do with uh, this bridging effect within neighborhoods. Uh, when we started this project in the uh, mid-1990s, uh, I had it took me a while to, to make Philadelphians believe that there actually were diverse neighborhoods in the city of Philadelphia. Our overwhelming template for thinking about cities, uh, at least before the 2000 census, was that cities were characterized by homogeneous neighborhoods slapped up against each other. Black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, uh, poor neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods. And to the extent we found areas of diversity in the city, there was a tendency to think that that was like some sort of statistical <laughs> artifact, you know, that it was a transitional neighborhood. It wasn't a real neighborhood. Real neighborhoods were homogeneous neighborhoods. As I mentioned, the 2000 census has been like a godsend for us because I think one of the clear findings out of the 2000 census, and I should mention that in my, uh, I actually do this arts project in my, uh, in my uh, spare time. My main, uh, the main project I'm actually working on this year is a history of the United States in the 20th century as told through the U.S. censuses. So uh, I've been very focused on the 2000 census. But you know, what's one of the clear things that's come through from the census, from the 2000 data, is that we're really facing a new urban reality uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. That uh, uh, what I call kind of an urban crisis meta metaphor that has really been our dominant way of thinking about cities through most of the second half of the 20th century has really no longer really represents what's going on in American cities. Uh, changes in immigration and the immigration and its impact on cities, uh, changes in the life cycle and the emergence of districts with large numbers of young adults uh, congregated in particular quarters of the city. Uh, and the, this really explosion in terms of ethnic and economic diversity, uh, I think have really fundamentally changed how we need to think through kind of the functioning of cities in, in, at this time in history. As you can see from this slide, in, in Philadelphia, the 90s were really an incredible decade in terms of the expansion of diversity. We went from a situation where only 26% of Philadelphians lived in a neighborhood that, was, that we define as either economically or ethnically diverse to uh, over 40%. Much of that increase had to do with ethnic diversity which uh, uh, during the 1990s, the proportion of Philadelphians living in an ethnically diverse neighborhood actually uh, doubled. Uh, one of the things we discovered is that diversity and culture uh, work together. 
so that's why the expansion of diversity, I think, ultimately is good news for people who care about arts and culture. You can see from this slide that level, the proportion of organizations that are located in economically and ethnic neighborhoods is far higher than the proportion located in, in non-diverse neighborhoods. Uh, and that isn't just like, oh, isn't that nice? Uh, we've, we've been able to demonstrate that it has a real impact on the possibility that neighborhoods will go through revitalization. In this particular slide, uh, we're defining revitalization as a neighborhood that during the 1990s didn't lose population and didn't, and didn't see its poverty rate go up. That, that's, or saw its poverty rate go down, let me put it positively. So if you gain population and had your poverty rate go down, we defined you as a revitalized neighborhood. In this slide, and I, I don't know if people in Princeton read Philadelphia papers, but you know we've, we've got an anti-blight uh, campaign now that the mayor has been sponsoring the Neighborhood Transformation Initiative. Uh, as part of that initiative, uh, the city classified every neighborhood in the city in one of six categories in terms of how close to being dead it was. Uh, the bottom two categories were what were called reclamation neighborhoods which are essentially neighborhoods that are slated to be leveled and cleared for development and distressed neighborhoods that were seen them that were seen as being kind of in the end stages of, of some sort of terminal decline. Uh, just looking at those neighborhoods, what we discovered was that the, the proportion of cultural organizations in that neighborhood was a very good predictor of the likelihood that these Worst neighborhoods in the city. Now, of course, it's 60%, as you can see from the slide, 60% of Philadelphians, unfortunately, live in these neighborhoods, but uh, live in, the, in these worst off neighborhoods. But within, in these worst neighborhoods, the likelihood that a neighborhood would gain population and lose poverty was very strongly connected to the level of cultural activity in that neighborhood. You can see that uh, among neighborhoods with the largest number of cultural providers, uh, nearly 16% uh, had revitalized during the 90s, while only 5% of those with the fewest cultural organizations. Sorry. All right, we're moving on. Uh, okay, so uh, the second point I wanted to make was this irrational organizations point. Uh, one of the points we found was, you know, we've been studying these very weak organizations, but we find they have very strong effects. And one of our, what that's led us to believe is that uh, kind of the models we use to think about organizations may not be very useful. Uh, here I'm posing a difference between kind of a, a model of kind of rational organizations from Weber, Weber and a model of what are called new social movements from um, uh, some of the literature of the social movements thing. And you know, I pose these as like two very different models. One that essentially focuses on bureaucracy, the other focuses on building networks and on the kind of diffuse organizational structure. Uh, you know, what we found is dealing with our organizations that if you're a community-based organization in a poor neighborhood, your resources are always outstripped by the demands on them. Uh, and that essentially there are two solutions to that problem. You can, the rational solution is essentially to pull back, to tend to your organizational needs and not worry about uh, not worry so much about your neighborhood. And an irrational solution, which is essentially move outward to be opportunistic and nimble and to build social, uh, and to see building a strong social network 
uh, as essentially the kind of strategy of survival. Uh, what we found is that many of the cultural organizations with which they, we work use this irrational strategy. Uh, and then I have a few examples here because we were AIDS. HIV was one of the themes of the conference. One of my students, Mary Petty, uh, did her work on uh, arts and AIDS in, in Philadelphia. And one of the things she found was four very distinct networks in terms of how arts and culture uh, worked in the city. Uh, in addition, we've also looked at other ways of, of looking at how networks operate in terms of the arts. On the left here, on the left here, uh, we, we followed 60 artists around and said, who do you build connections with over a period of one year? And this, all those little red dots are the 60 artists, and all those other dots are who they were connected to. I mean, again, in terms of uh, the previous speaker's point, uh, artists, if you have an organizationally focused model of how the arts work, you tend to marginalize artists, whereas we think they have to be central to the uh, to the debate, uh, to the discussion. The second diagram, the one on the right, is of the institutional networks that these small community-based organizations formed over one year. Um, right. uh, oh, I missed one. Uh, anyway, so our point is that we need better yardsticks, that uh, uh, community-based arts organizations need to be judged by the strength of their networks and by their impacts on neighborhoods, not by their organizational performance, but that funders and other folks tend to use these organizational standards because they're better developed and because they're easier to collect. And that as, if we continue to use bad yardsticks for judging the effectiveness of cultural organizations, we'll continue to make bad decisions about who we fund and who we support. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. We're now going to switch into the second half and the AIDS organizations. Um, I, I went to a, a rather academic uh, uh, meeting on AIDS about three weeks ago, and I was struck by an acronym I hadn't paid much attention to before because my life was divided between academic work on HIV, AIDS, and the arts work I do here. But of course, ART, um, art, uh, means uh, antiretroviral therapy. Uh, and this meeting was entirely about arts, and it took me the first 30 seconds or so to change gears from one life to another. But it's not a bad lead-in to this. Uh, we've got two different organizations represented here, uh, and the uh, first is LifeBeat, and we've got two representatives, uh, John Canelli, who is the executive director um, of LifeBeat, the music industry fights AIDS, a national nonprofit organization dedicated to reaching America's youth, with a message of HIV-AIDS prevention. LifeBeat mobilizes the talents and resources of the music industry to raise awareness and to provide support to the AIDS community. Previously, Mr. Canelli was a Senior Vice President of Music and Talent at MTV, where he was responsible for programming music videos, maintaining relationships with artists, managers, and record companies, as well as booking shows. He's also the president of Rocket Records, Elton John's label. Uh, so a major player in the industry. And Daniel Glass, who is actually going to be making uh, the presentation, is the founding board president of LifeBeat. Um, and uh, explain uh, what that is already. Um, he also serves as the president of Artemis Records, 
and is a founding board <coughs> member of the newly formed Dance Music Hall of Fame. He's profiled as one of Crane's New York Business 40 Under 40 success stories and is the vice chair of the UJA Federation of New York, which honored him as Music Visionary of the Year. So these are two major people in the music industry who have now dedicated themselves to this project. It's very impressive, and what they do is impressive. Thank you. So on behalf of John and myself, we're very, very proud to be here today. I applaud all of you for doing this. Um, I'm not as academic as Dudley or, or Mark, so um, I'm, I guess I come from the streets, as they say. Much more, uh, again, my resume is not as, uh, as academic, as they say. But So I, I think the two themes I picked up from, uh, from Dudley and Mark were impact on culture and impact on society. And I think the most personal thing I could do for all of us today is to discuss how Life Beat began and why we're here and what John and I try and do every day. Um, most of my day is, uh, is consumed as a parent of three children. One of my daughter is here today. And uh, as the head of a, what I think is the largest and best independent record company, I've run uh, Universal Records and uh, before that EMI and Chrysalis Records. So um, I've been associated with artists and talent. I think that's our common ground here, uh, the respect that Mark was talking about. I too believe and agree that the artist is the center and the best uh, conduit uh, you know, of, of the message that we try and get out. And that's really the people that we work with most, uh, the artists who have the most power in our community. So. Um, I've worked with some of the great artists and I continue to work with some of the great artists. This year in particular, um, I worked very closely with the late Warren Zevon, who just won two Grammys. We're very proud of that. And uh, he taught us a lot about life and what death is about. And also artists who are outspoken, like Steve Earle, who's been very outspoken on the death penalty and other issues. Um, and uh, someone very close to home, who's about 400 feet away from here, is Professor Cornell West. We released a controversial CD that, uh, I guess, got him from Harvard to here. So uh, I do have a lot of connection with, uh, with Princeton and uh, came here with my daughter a couple months ago and fell in love with the place. So I'm really, really happy to be here today and uh, happy to share this with a dear friend of mine, John Canelli, who I've worked with my whole career and uh, I'm proud to have him as a comrade. So let me tell you really quickly how Life Beat began. Uh, Bob Caviano who uh, managed the village people and people like Grace Jones, pretty prominent artists in the dance community. Uh, I received a call on a Saturday afternoon. I'm in Connecticut, and I'm getting ready to go to the pool with my kids. And Bob calls up and said, uh, he called me Danny. He says, Danny, you got a, you got a second? I said, yep. Uh, strange to get a call on a Saturday from a business contact like that. He said, I'm sick. And this was about 12 and a half years ago. I said, what's wrong? He says, uh, very simply, since I came out and said, I, I, I think I have AIDS. So I said to him, uh, why, you know, not, not why are you calling me, but it was a, I stopped in what I was doing and I said, okay, we'll deal with it. Because almost everything in my life to that point, you could deal with. And I said, tell me more about it. Well, two and a half hours later, we were still on the phone and it was a uh, tremendous day in my life of growth and reality check. 
Um, the kids went to the pool, and you know, I, I got on with the conversation. The reason I received the call is I had just finished a fundraising drive for the chairman of my company when I was the uh, president of EMI, and I had, uh, under my umbrella, we raised $4.2 million for it. Uh, an organization which really was about fighting uh, cancer, but especially leukemia. But the last word of the organization was AIDS. And uh, I told my friend Bob, he said, no problem. I said, listen, I obviously have some clout. I just led this charge and this, uh, you know, this campaign. I'll help you out. So on a Saturday, I got, I got a hold of the gentleman who was head of the organization. And to his credit, he was incredibly compassionate. And his name was Tony Martell. And he basically invited Bob to be there first thing in the morning at, I think it was Sloan Kettering Hospital, to be part of the test. And Bob had said to me, Daniel, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. He was right. What I learned over the next 48 hours was the extreme uh, homophobia that existed in the music industry, the hip, wonderful, great music industry that I was part of. And uh, I became embarrassed and ashamed of my own community. And here I was, you know, straight heterosexual dad, and uh, I guess this was my calling. So I, I just mobilized myself, my family, and uh, called an emergency meeting at my company conference room. And I must say, that was one of the most exciting meetings I've ever attended in my life. There were activists in the room, and I mean real old-fashioned activists from ACT UP. Uh, and if you've been in a meeting, you know, with people like... Larry Kramer was not in the room. He had just been thrown out of ACT UP. And the timeliness is his play just reopened on Broadway the other night and got the most incredible reviews, The Normal Heart. Um, but people like Vincent Gagliostro, people who would come in, and I thought I was, I thought I was a terrific, um, what the word is, uh, I thought I was an activist. I thought I was someone who had really gone against the grain in my life. And I was a nobody compared to the people in this room. Uh, a couple of the guys just got back from Washington. They had actually bought an open.